uh, we're going to start about we'll talk about the uh, the Passover, right? Um, especially in the sense that it relates to Christ. <clears throat> so first, we'll give us a, a very brief in- introduction that Christ has always been symbolized with the Lamb. So one of the first times we see this is in the Gospel of uh, Saint John, or in actually a few of the Gospels, but specifically. When, when uh, John the Baptist is baptizing Christ and it says, and the next day John the Baptist here saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's very clear here, he's making some sort of connection between Christ and Lamb and sin being removed. Next, and I looked and behold, and in the midst of the throne and of the, of the, and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this is from the book of Revelation. And the interesting thing about this is that you have a, slam, a lamb that's slain. So usually when something has been slain, it's laying over, it's dead. But this we see that the lamb is standing upright or it stood and it looks like it's been slain. Obviously... Uh, a symbol of Christ's death and his resurrection. Even though he's been slain, he's still standing. And finally, another example would be, um, and this is what is interesting, this is from St. Paul, it says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was crucified for us. So the most important thing about <clears throat> the Passover was the lamb, of course, right? Um, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But specifically, how does that lamb relate to us? And why does St. Paul say that uh, our lamb or our Passover is Christ? So, Passover, it's obviously a historical event. This is something that we believe actually took place. And it took place in, in the land of Egypt. Um, the Jews were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And this was first prophesied or told to Abraham by God. He said that Abraham's descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs and will they will serve them for 400 years. So the Jews, during the time of Jacob, they went to Egypt when there was a famine because Joseph was the second in the, in the land and they lived there for 400 years and then there arose a man that did not know the history of who Joseph was, what he did for the land of Egypt and Pharaoh enslaved the people and he feared them to the point that he started to kill the, the firstborn male, or uh, sorry, all the male children <clears throat> to keep their numbers down. And so that was not good, obviously. Uh, so that was, you know, told to Abraham by God. And finally, we see in the beginning of Exodus that God calls Moses to lead his people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and into victory. And Moses goes down to Egypt and God punishes the Egyptians and their gods with nine plagues. And then the final plague, which was the Passover, was devastating for the land of Egypt. Uh, obviously, you guys know what happens during the Passover, but we'll go through it real quick to refresh our memories. And this takes place in Exodus chapter 12. And Exodus chapter 12 explains the rites or the right of the of uh, Passover. So we're going to read it together. Um, so if you have your Bible and you want to read, feel free to follow along. Exodus chapter 12. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for, the, for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's needs, you shall make your account for the lamb. <clears throat> your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where, uh, where, they, where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herb they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled with, at all with water, but roasted in fire. Its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be a memorial to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. And you shall keep it as a feast by everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from that first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No matter of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month of, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the generation of Israel. Whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood, and that is in a basin, and strike the lintels and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of your, the door of his, of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the house and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses or strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised. 
that you shall keep this service and it shall be when your children say to you what do you mean by this service that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households so the people bowed their heads and worshipped then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron and they did so they did and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck the firstborn of all the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of his captive, who was in a dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. You can imagine how devastating this would be for an entire country. Imagine if the entire United States woke up one day and every firstborn in every house, uh, whether person or flock or beast or whatever, then that was just dead. You can imagine, you know, mass confusion, mass hysteria. It would be truly devastating. <clears throat> then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. And go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth and about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes as uh, of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the land of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years that on that very same day it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Last slide. Sorry guys. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for the bringing of them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night that the Lord, a solemn, uh, this is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for the children of Israel throughout their generation. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, when he may, uh, then he may eat of it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat of it. In one house it shall be eaten, you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass that on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. So again, you know, chapter 12 is a, uh, basically it explains the right 
of the Passover, and this is where we're going we're gonna to start. So we're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 6. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This shall be this month shall be the beginning of months, and that should be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of every month, uh, of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small, let him and his neighbor's uh, neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole of the assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So, specifications of the lamb, right? So, number one, we start first with uh, the first month of the of the year. So, for us, it would be the equivalent of January, basically, because that's the first month of the year for us. Um, but for them, it's a little bit different. So the first month of the year is going to be according to the lunar calendar. And Pseudomacarius, one of the writers, the church fathers, he says that this is the beginning of everything for the Jews, was the Passover, and the same is true for us. right? The, the death and resurrection of Christ is essentially the beginning of, of the, it's the beginning of the end of time. Right, so when we come into church, uh, like uh, some of the church fathers will say that um, one of the church fathers said that it is the 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 eschatos, the liturgy is the eschatos, which would be the end of time. Why? Because we celebrate a timeless event, and that would be the the, the commemoration or the crucifixion of Christ, and we partake in the body, and at the same time, we also commemorate his resurrection from the dead, and then we commemorate his second coming. So that's why, for example, Abuna says, for uh, after we say, Amin, 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 you know, your uh, Amin, 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 your death, your resurrection, all that stuff, Abuna will say what he says, uh, therefore, every time you eat of this cup and drink of this, uh, eat of this bread, drink of my cup, you proclaim a death, uh, no, that's first, sorry, that was before. After, he says, um, we commemorate, or we remember, we observe, but specifically the word commemorate, his coming, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming at the... Say that, say that again. The second coming, awesome and full of glory. How do you commemorate something that hasn't happened? How do you remember something that hasn't happened? You can't. Right? So that's like saying, for example, that I will commemorate... Uh, today I'm commemorating the death of a saintly person who's still alive. It doesn't make any sense. Right? So, the the way that we can do that is because we believe when we come into church, essentially time stops because essentially we're in heaven. And in heaven there is no time. So that's how we can say, you know, we could commemorate his, uh, his second coming awesome and full of glory. So, for us, the Passover, which is Christ, his death and his resurrection, is the beginning of everything in our lives. Right. Second thing is, it's selected on the tenth day of the month and slaughtered on the fourteenth day. So if it's selected on the tenth, so that'll be the tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth. So that's five days. When which day did Christ enter into Jerusalem? Which day of the week? For Palm Sunday. Sunday. And then he stayed how many days before he was crucified? Five days. 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So he came into Jerusalem, and he came in through the Sheep's Gate. That's what you know they they believe where he they believe he came in from the Mount of Olives, and then he was kept for five days in Jerusalem, even though he would, you know spend the night in Bethany, and then on uh, and then he was betrayed on he was arrested on on uh, on Thursday, which was actually the Passover, and then he was slaughtered on the on the, on Friday, right? The lamb has to be a male and has to be without blemish. Why? That one's pretty obvious. Because Christ came as a male human being. Right? And he came and he was sinless. He was pure. He was a perfect man, perfect God. Perfect in every way. So therefore he has to be without blemish. And he has to be young because young is healthy. You can't offer God something that is that is less than less than perfect. And I think, you know, obviously outside of the symbolism... Of, of that in relation to Christ that also applies to our lives if I offer something to God I have to offer him the best that I have sometimes you know we hear stories that are at our church of people that donate you know clothes and things like that and sometimes the people who collect the stuff says people donate trash the church ends up not only having to you know go and pick up tr- people's trash but then at the end they go through it and realize how bad it is and then they end up having to pay to dump it. So not only are are you are you not donating the best that you have, you're do- donating something that's so bad that the church has to pay to get rid of it for you on your behalf. So when we offer something, obviously we have to offer what is what what is the best that we have. We can't offer anything less than that because he is obviously far more great than that. So it says here, kill the lamb at twilight to show the setting and evening of the world. So when the lamb was killed, it was killed at twilight. And so Cyprian here, who was um, a bishop of, of Carthage, so that would be like, I think, modern day Tunisia or something like that. He He's one of the church fathers in North Africa. And he said that, he or he believes, one of the symbolisms of that, of killing at twilight, it shows that the world is coming to an end. The world, not in the sense that like the, t- the, the, the end of the world that we're thinking of, no. The world in the sense of created, the creation as, all, as, as a whole that's fallen and everything, with the, the death of the Lamb at, the, uh, at evening, it's a symbol also of Christ who died in the evening because he, he was crucified at, uh, at the sixth hour, but then he died at the ninth hour, right? And so he died in the evening. And with that, all the all the world as we know it, all creation that had been fallen as we know it, all that ends. And then there's the ushering in of the kingdom of God. And that's why um, if you look at the icon of the crucifixion, a lot of times what you'll see is, you'll see Christ crucified, and you'll see behind him, everything is dark around him. And then behind him you have the gold, but it's the, the gold leaf like, like this, for example, but it's in the shape of a V coming out of the cross. Uh, perfect, right there, yes. So you see how behind the crucifixion you have the shape of a V, and that symbolizes the opening of paradise, the ushering in of the kingdom of God. So that's why it, it looks like that. Whereas if you look everywhere else, you know, you'll see kind of gold everywhere, but specifically in that icon, you see that V, right? And then in the icon next to it, which would be the resurrection, he's surrounded by that completely, uh, or actually, this is uh, sorry. His uh, descendant, the hate, he's surrounded that, by that completely because he is the divine. He's the source of life. He gives everything. 
but the one next to it is the, the opening, almost as if you're opening a door and there's a ray of light that's coming through. So the killing of the lamb at twilight, we said, is a symbol of the end of the world, the, the end of the fallen world, and the ushering in of new life that is uh, that comes with, with Christ. Okay? Sorry, there's a bunch of hyperlinks here. If I miss them, I go. Okay, so verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the, the houses where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat of it. So, this is a picture of, you know, what it would have looked like. Obviously, they have a door, and so you would take uh, some of the hyssop and you'd put it into the blood of the lamb that you just uh, killed, and you would put it on the two doorposts and the lintel. And when I was... When I was younger, I always heard how this was a symbol of the cross. Did anybody else hear that? Yes. So, and I was always kind of confused about it. And I always wondered, you know, how is that a symbol of the cross? Well, if you take, you know, let's imagine that there's a door in the middle of that. And you have the, the, the two upright posts and the, and the uh, transverse post. And if you take them and you just rearrange them, it is essentially the cross. You know, two upright, or an upright motion and transverse motion, and, and that is your crucifix right there. So that was always a, a symbol of the cross. And I had always known about that, but I didn't hear, you know, until recently I didn't know what, how that applied. Uh, now, if it's a type, uh, St. John Chrysostom writes, and he says, now if its type had so much power, both in the temple of the Hebrews and in the midst of the Egyptians, when sprinkled on the doorposts, how much more power does the reality have? So, if we think about it, does the blood of the Lamb really mean anything super special aside from this, uh, uh, apart from this ritual? It means nothing. It's uh, the blood of an animal, right? But because it is, it is a symbol of something so great, it was able to save the, the Hebrews from devastation and set them free from slavery in Egypt. And it is a symbol of something that is super important, which is obviously the sacrifice of Christ. So when we come to church on Sunday and we partake of the blood, this is not something that's a symbol. You know, we believe that it is in reality the blood of Christ. And if the, if the ritual or if the symbol of the real thing is so powerful to ward off death in that event, how much more power does the actuality of what we partake have? And so when you put it in that, you know, in that light, you, you really kind of approach the, the mysteries with a much more serious attitude. I know that, um, some of, some of the other churches, the, the adherents will, will take communion to, like basically twice a year. The adults. The children take communion, they say they're pure. So they take communion all the time. But the adults will take communion in basically around Christmas and, and and uh, the feast of the resurrection, and that's it. Because they say, I don't want to overdo it because it's it's far too you know precious, far too um, far you know far too great for me to kind of take it lightly. And so I, I better just be on the safe side and, and not take it as much. And then so when they approach, they approach with great fear. Obviously, there's something to be respected about that, but 
obviously, I, I don't think that was the <laughs> that's the right intention. The intention is for unity. So Saint Basil says you commune like three, four times a week if you can. So I don't think twice a, a year is good. But I do understand what the point is that a lot of times we just go take communion and then you partake of of the holy body and the precious blood as if you're, you know, just getting a snack or whatever it is. But I think if we actually understand the the, the power of the mystery of the the holy mysteries, I think it would change our lives. Um, unleavened bread and bitterness. So for I want to talk a little bit about the unleavened bread. I know that you guys know a lot of this. Leaven is obviously yeast, and what's that a symbol of? Hmm? Sin. Who do you know why it's a symbol of sin? You get what? Sorry. Separated from God. So that's that's perfect, right? The other thing is that when you put yeast, let's say for example, you're gonna bake some bread, and for those who make korban, how much yeast do you put? You put it, you know, equal parts to the flour. No, you just put a little bit. So for a whole bunch, you put like a teaspoon or something like that. And the same thing is true for sin in our lives. If I don't, if I'm not careful about the, the little amounts of sin in my life, it can cause extreme amounts of, you know, growth, distortion, etc. So that's why, oops, that's why sin is a uh, sorry uh, yeast or leaven is a symbol of sin. So when they offer the sacrifice of the Passover, the next step after that, the first day, was they were to remove all leaven from their house, all yeast. And the same is true for us, right? We are supposed to be, once we partake, or before even before we partake, we're supposed to have all the sin that's in our lives sorted out. And they take it out for seven days. Why seven? Because the world was created in seven days. And so it's a symbol of all of creation, all of time. And so it's a, a, a number of totality. So if I remove sin from my life in total, that's what God wants, right? So um, another thing, another example of this would be when Christ was walking with his disciples and he said to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Do you remember that verse? And so they, they didn't understand what he meant by that. And so they, they said uh, to each other, is he, is he upset with us because like, we didn't bring bread? Is he upset because, you know, he said... No, we just had the feeding of the 5,000. You saw how many, you know, how much bread you guys had left over. It has nothing to do with the bread. Be careful of the hypocrisy. So sin, again, is, is symbolized by, uh, yeast or leaven. Um, so that was, that's, that's the unleavened bread and why he wants us, uh, to remove that from our lives. And then this was interesting. Why the bitterness? Why did God want them to eat the, the lamb with bitter herbs. Origen writes and says, but we eat the flesh of the lamb and the unleavened bread with bitter herbs, either by being grieved with a godly grief because of repentance unto salvation. So sometimes feeling bad for our sins, it's not always a bad thing, obviously. It's a good thing. You have remorse and that remorse can be bitter, right? It's just like when, uh, Saint Peter denies Christ. And it says Christ looks at him, he sees him, and then he runs. He basically runs out, and he weeps bitterly. But that weeping bitterly immediately kind of showed him where he was, and that eventually would later obviously lead him to repentance. And the same is true for us. So, 
you know, but we eat the flesh of the lamb and the unleavened bread with bitter herbs, either by being grieved with a godly grief because of repentance unto salvation, which brings no regret, or by seeing and being nurtured from the visions of the truth, which we discover because of our trials. And I really, this is the reason why I like this quote was the second part. I'll read it again. Or by seeing and being nurtured from the visions of the truth, which we discover because of our trials. And sometimes when we pass through trials in our lives, and it's, you know, and they're really painful, a lot of times that reveals the, the truth of who we are. And sometimes, for example, in spiritual life, in life, we'll feel that we've attained a certain spiritual status or a certain spiritual level. And you pass through a trial and you quickly see how you lose some of the grace that you've been given. You lose some of that, um, some of the peace, the godly peace that you had, and you quickly realize how weak you are, and then you see the reality of the situation, which is it's only by God's grace and His mercy that you attain that that peace in, to begin with, and it has nothing to do with your ability, your 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 prayers, your your effort. It's really all due to Him. And so when you see that, that truth is bitter. That truth is painful. That truth is not something that's enjoyable, but at the same time, it's something that that is necessary for further growth, further development. And because if you stay at that same state and you never really mature past that, you're never going to mature into what you're supposed to be. So, uh, and, you know, we have essentially an idiom in our daily lives that um, sums this up, the truth hurts. And the truth does hurt, and it is painful sometimes. But at the same time, without the visions of the truth, uh, you know, we, we're not gonna we're not going to go anywhere. Verse 9, do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire with its head and its legs and entrails. And this is the really interesting one, uh, because usually, you know, it's either a, a full, a full, uh, burnt offering, like in the Old Testament, or they would actually gut the animal and take out, uh, some of the entrails and wash them, and, uh, they'd offer up some of the fat and stuff like that. So, excuse me, this is one of the, the few sacrifices uh, or maybe even the only sacrifice where they roasted the whole thing whole. They did not gut the animal. Okay, everything was whole. You shall let it alone. Uh, sorry, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So, why the head and the feet? Um, Cyril of Jerusalem writes that the head is the divinity of our Lord, and the feet, and the, his, and the feet is his humanity. Because when we think of you know heavenly or divine or something like that, it's the elevated. When we think of you know humanity, it's basically everything that's touching the floor. Um, and so, when when you if you were to, let's say, take this lamb and cut off the head or cut off the feet or something like that, you're essentially separating Christ because it is a symbol of Christ. And so when you eat it with the head, with the feet, with everything, you're eating Christ in totality because he is one being. He cannot, he's not separate. He's not, you can't separate his humanity from his divinity. So everything is to be taken together as the whole Christ. Um, Ambrose the, uh, thought though that these, those who partake, Oh, actually, sorry, that's the next one. So let none of it remain until morning. This one, this point here is what the church uses to where it, 
uses that as justification or reasoning why we don't leave any of the of the mysteries for the following day. That's why Abuna finishes everything unless he's going to go obviously give communion to somebody that's sick. He eats everything, consumes everything that day, that same day. Nothing is left over. In other churches, I think there's a, in the Catholic church, there's something like called uh, adoration or something like that. And they'll take part of the sacrifice from that day and they, they set up like an area for it and people come in throughout the day to adore or worship or, you know, basically enjoy its presence or whatever. I think the Greeks have something similar. I don't think they, they go and they pray, but I think they can save some of it. Um, and our right, Abuna finishes everything. And and we use the, the let none of it remain until morning as as our explanation of why we don't do that. Does that make sense? Eating while dressed with the belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and a staff in your hand and you eat in haste. Uh, Ambrose thought that those who partake wear sandals to protect their feet against all attacks of spiritual wild beasts and the bite of the serpent. So the sandals are a symbol of basically if we partake, you're, you're trying to separate yourself from the world. You try to separate yourself from the spiritual attacks that come against us and from the serpents that bite us, the little, you know, the little things that catch up with us, the things that can get in the way of us approaching in a worthy manner to the, uh, obviously to the, to the body and the blood. St. Cyril of Alexandria had a, t- a slightly different take. He says, For I affirm that it is the duty of those who are partakers of Christ to beware of a barren indolence. Right? Indolence here being laziness. He's saying that the reason why that they're, they're fully clothed is they're ready for action and not lazy. A lot of times, I think one of the biggest challenges in our spiritual lives, maybe not for you guys, but for me for sure, one of the biggest challenges for me is, is laziness, sloth. Where I go home and I'm tired, it's been a long day, and I say, I'm, I'll just pray tomorrow. Or, I, you know, my alarm goes off in the morning and say, I'll, just, I'll pray tonight. Or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to read my Bible and, uh, I'll, I'll do it later. It's just been a long day. So laziness is a big thing. So here he's saying that they are instructed to eat with their sandals on their feet, rod in their hand, and, uh, and, uh, and a belt on so that they're ready for work to show that they're ready to, to for action, right? And he continues, Yet it is a further duty not to have, as it were, their loins ungirt and loose, but to be ready cheerfully to undertake whatever labors become the saints. And I really like that line because I think that a lot of times the thing that separates us from the, the saint saints, obviously, aside from the gifts that God gave them, was their willingness to do the things that we're not willing to do, to go that extra mile in their spiritual lives. Not that, not that, you know, if I did that, if I, you know, just go through and have a check mark and I just go, yeah, I went to liturgy, you know, I go to go three times a, a week and I do this and do that and then I'll, I'll automatically I'll become a saint. It doesn't work that way, obviously. But they, their, their desire to be with God, like when we hear about Pope Krolos whose daily routine was wake up at four o'clock in the morning, Pray morning praises, and then pray the uh, uh, do, do sorry midnight praises, and do the morning doxology. And around then, it'll be time for the liturgy to start. So he prays the liturgy, and then he'll go meet with some people, rest for a little bit, and in the evening he goes and he has the ashaya. 
and then he'll meet with some more people, and then he goes to sleep, and he wakes up for midnight praises at 4 o'clock, and that was every single day in his life. Every single day. Not once a week, twice a week, every single day. And keep in mind that before him, from what I heard, that the patriarchs would pray like maybe one or two liturgies a year for the feasts, for whatever reason. I don't know why, but that was common, that was accepted. So would have been very easy for him to say, you know, this would have been appropriate for me as a monk. But now that I'm a patriarch, I've got responsibilities that I have a flock to look after. But he didn't see it that way. He saw that the, the best thing he could do for his flock was to pray for them. And so his dedication to do that, sometimes, you know, if I go to liturgy on Saturday, Sunday comes around, and like, oh, I, went, I went to liturgy yesterday, I'm just going to sleep in today, and I'm tired, and whatever. Um, but, you know, to do that every single day for your entire life shows the kind of dedication that he had. So I like when, you know, St. Cyril of Alexandria says, Yet it is a further, yet it is a further duty not to have, as it were, their loins ungirt and loose, but to be ready cheerfully to undertake whatever labors become the saints, and to hasten besides with the alacrity wherever the law of God leads them. For this, and for this reason, he very appropriately made them wear the garbs of travelers. So the garb of travelers is obviously shows that you don't have one place that you gotta stay, you're, you're never comfortable. Right, but for us, for example, uh, when Abuna is praying the the part after we say or may their blessings be with us all, Amen. He says, "Those, O Lord, whose souls you have taken, repose them in the paradise of joy." And we too, who are sojourners, what does a sojourner mean? It's a traveler. Why? Because we this is not our home. This is not where we're meant to be. A lot of times, we feel like our lives here on earth are. Something that's going to last forever. We live our lives as if we're going to live forever. We work hard. We spend. We we let stuff that happens, negative things that happen at work, get to us, um, and it really upsets us, etc. We lose sight of the fact that you know, even if I live a very long life, 120 years, in the grand scheme of things, you know, in the grand scheme of eternity, how much is 120 years? It's nothing. And so we always have to remember that we're sojourners. And that's why even, you know, when it came to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't have a dwelling place. They lived out of tents. Nomads. Even though there there were houses at that time. But God wanted them to always remember that they are sojourners in this land. Right? And who knows... Who knows what the uh, the Hebrew word for Passover is? Say it. Louder. Pascha. So the Hebrew word for Passover is Pascha. So what we call our Holy Week is essentially what we say Passover, but in Hebrew. So the church has been aware of you know the 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 link between Christ the Passover and and the the, the actual Passover, the historical Passover for quite a long time since, you know, St. Paul. And so that's why we choose to call Holy Week Pascha. It's, it's Passover. We're celebrating Passover, but with the true Passover, not with the symbols of the Old Testament, but in the light of Christ, who is our Passover. And uh, Augustine of Hippo had a very nice, like a little play on words. He wrote, and we effect a most salutary passing over when we pass over from the devil to Christ. 
and from this tottering world to his most solidly established kingdom. And therefore we pass over to God who endures so that we may not pass over with the passing world. One more time. And we affect the most salutary passing over when we pass over from the devil to Christ and from this tottering world to his most solidly established kingdom. And therefore we pass over to God who endures so that we may not pass over with the passing world. So that we may live forever, essentially, with Christ. And I'm not going to go you know, verse by verse here. I'm going to stop only where I have these little hyperlinks. John Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom writes, not because it is blood, but because it prefigures the master's blood. Although statues of the emperor have neither life nor perception, they can save the men endowed with the perception and life who flee to them for refuge, not because they are bronze, but because they are uh, the image of the emperor. This was interesting. I didn't know what he was talking about here. But what I found, what I, what I found out was at some point during you know history, if something happened, there was some sort of crime or debt that needed to be collected or something like that. Now, you know, for example, if you are if you're an illegal alien, and I think this happened in Colorado uh, or or something like that, the guy ran to the church and he went into the church. And authorities respect that if he's in the church, he's they can't go in and drag him out, essentially, right? But what would happen in in that time period was they would go and run to the the statue of the emperor. And if he was standing by the statue of the emperor, the authorities or the person that was, you know, persecuting them or whatever, respected that because it is the statue of the emperor. Right? So if we think about, if we think about, you know, these statues mean really nothing, but because they bore the image of the emperor, the people on, in this earth respected them. Well, how about the blood of the lamb that we talked about, right? Um, it, because it prefigured the blood of the master, it was to be respected. And there are lots of symbols like that, even today, that we talk about, we think about, and we apply in our church, right? So there's the bronze serpent, for example. That's why I have this picture of Pope Crowless. Do you guys remember the, the story of the bronze serpent from uh, from Numbers, I believe it was? So the people sinned, and then God punished them by sending out serpents, and they would bite them, and then they began, they just started dying, right? Thousands of them started dying. So they cried out to Moses, and God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it up in the middle of the camp, and whoever was bit, all they had to do was they would turn and look at the serpent, and they would live, right? And the church fathers say, well, that's a symbol of the cross. And I was always confused, why would that be a symbol of the cross? Why would Christ be associated with the serpent? It's because, remember, in Galatians, huh? The shape of the cross? Okay, and the bronze serpents are Okay. And so, uh, in, in Galatians, St. Paul says that Christ became accursed for us on our behalf. So that's why. So when he died on the cross, one of the, the Old Testament laws said that cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. And so Christ was cursed because of us. Not that he did anything wrong, but because he was hanging essentially from a tree, which would be the wood. So he became accursed on our behalf. So he, that's a symbol of the bronze serpent. And now our bishops 
and our patriarch, when they walk in, they hold that staff. And at the top of that staff are two serpents looking at each other. And the symbol behind that is, don't look to me. I am a symbol of Christ. So look at the, look at the cross. That is, that is your savior, not, not my person. Does that make sense? So that's the bronze serpent. Next is the sign of the cross. So we, we all do the sign of the cross. I remember, I like the story of, uh, of St. George where they brought a magician one time to, to try to kill him. And so the, he, I guess he had some extremely powerful poison and he offered it to him and he said, sure, I'll drink it. And so everybody's watching and they're wanting to see what happens and before he takes it, he does the sign of the cross on it and drinks it and nothing happens to him. So the magician says, now this guy's, it's because he did the sign of the cross. Refill it again. Don't let him do the sign of the cross. And so he says, okay. And so they do it. They give him the cup. And so St. George says, okay, do you want me, you know, to drink, you know, if this is the circle of the cup, he says, do you want me to drink from here? And he points with his mouth because his hands are tied behind him. Do you want me to drink from here? Would you like me to drink from here or here or here? Which is the sign of the cross. And he, and he said, you know, from there or whatever, and he drinks it, nothing happens to them. So they like lose their minds, right? Um, same is true. For, there are lots of stories about St. Anthony and even Abu Nafaltos that happened in, where they would go in the monastery. I mean, in the desert, they needed to sleep. They draw a big circle around them and they do the sign of the cross all the in the sand, all around outside that circle. Uh, and they go to sleep and they wake up the next day or in the middle of the night or whatever and they look and there are wild beasts and serpents and scorpions all outside that circle but nothing is allowed to come inside so the sign of the cross even though you know essentially you're kind of making some motions but the power that it carries behind it is the power of the, the actual cross of Christ so it's a symbol of something that that is so great that even the symbol bears strength right and then the same is also true for icons. Icons give us a window into the life of these saints. They, you know, when I pray in front of an icon, I'm not praying to the piece of wood that's standing in front of me. I'm praying to the person that it symbolizes. I'm, I'm asking for their intercession on my behalf. It is, it is a, a window for me to reach that person. And it's been obviously blessed by the church. This is uh, St. Cyprian. He writes that the faith of the divine scripture manifests that the church is not outside and that it cannot be rent into two or divided against itself, but that it holds the unity of an inseparable and invisible house. So that essentially what he's saying is he forces them to eat in one house and not go from one place or the other to, to show them that the church is to be unified. Don't Don't break that. In your house, that's one church. And you know, don't go from one place or another. Stay in your house because that is the unity of the church or a symbol of the unity of the church. And obviously, you know, not one bone of him shall be broken. And that's a, you'd know the symbol of the, the, the two thieves that were crucified with Christ. They break their legs. They come to Christ and they find that he's dead because obviously he, the lamb is a symbol of him that no bone shall be broken. So Christ dies early. And then we see the criteria for the partakers. This is an ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every man's servant who is bought for money. When you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner 
and a hired servant shall not eat of it. So, this here. Um, do we have anything like that similar today that applies to our church? Yeah. Right? So, the, the, sim, the similarity would be baptism. Because circumcision, according to Romans chapter 6, is a symbol of baptism. And unless you're baptized, you can't partake of the, of the sacrifice. And so that's why in some churches the Buna will say, unless you're baptized, please do not approach. And so that goes even back to the Passover. Unless you're circumcised, you may not eat of it. But if you're circumcised, then he may eat. And then all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, then let all his males be circumcised or baptized, you know, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Lord be to God for We want to thank you so much for listening to St. Basil's podcast. We hope that you have gained spiritually from our remarkable speakers, and we appreciate your support towards this podcast. St. Basil American Coptic Orthodox Church is looking to purchase a home, and we would love for you to be a part of our community. We are looking to raise funds towards this novel mission, Orthodoxy in an American Context within the San Diego area. You may donate online through our website, www.stbasil.net. That's www.stbasil.net. Or click on the link below and it will take you to our donations page. You may also mail in your contribution at the address located on our website. We thank you for any contribution and may our Lord Jesus Christ always bless your heart and home.